You are listening to All Things Cosmic, Philosophy, Science, Art, an extension of the Center for Process Studies, the podcast for the people, pursuing the common good. I'm your host, John Ivan Gill, along with Andrew Davis. Open the door, come on in, and enjoy some great conversation. Well, good Monday. How are you doing? I almost said good afternoon, but you might not be listening to this on the afternoon. You may be listening to this at the crack of dawn while you're getting up to go to work or meditate or, I don't know, go play ping pong. I don't know what you do in the morning, but you may be listening to this any time of the day. But welcome to All Things Cosmic. I am John Ivan Gill, Cross Community Coordinator at the one and only Center for Process Studies. Really good to be here. And on behalf of Andrew Davis, we say welcome. Dope, dope, dope. Well, if you've been in tune, then you know how bomb season two has been so far. We've had some amazing guests, um, guests who've been on. So shout out to all of them. Shout out to Rupa Palai for the last episode, which was really amazing. Hope you enjoyed. And if you haven't listened to that episode, please go on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Center for Process Studies, SoundCloud page, and wherever quality podcasts are held to catch up. Don't miss out. Dope, dope, dope. We have an amazing episode for you today. Um, Before we get into that, my regular spiel, novel adventures, explorations in aesthetics and spirituality. That's not exactly what the what's after the colon, but you get it. <laughs> if you are interested in writing at the intersection of theology, aesthetics, and justice, accessible text that people can take in their hands and use for the common good, then please hit us up. Um, go on, go on over to centerforprocessstudies.org. CTR the number four because we hip. <laughs> CTR number four process.org and scroll down to the section on publications and you'll see a write up for all things cosmic. Kelly Keith Perry and I are spearheading it and we're happy to be the editors of it and we're happy to get some good work out there. So we still got submission space is open so contact us at novel adventures proposals at ctr the number four process.org if you have something like that we'd really like to see it but yeah today we are honored to have the one and only jose pimienta bay who is associate professor of african and african-american studies at berea college and an amazing author um, and member of the Moorish Science Temple of America, scholar on Moorish history, and so much more. Um, so I had a great conversation with Dr. Bay on the history of the Moors. Who are the Moors? What is the Moorish Science Temple of America? How racial language fits into the understandings of the Moorish Temple? the Morris Science Temple of America, and not only the Morris Science Temple of America, but how racial language is challenged by much of what Dr. Bay presents to us, um, and so much more. 
So I'm looking forward to getting into that conversation with you. But before we get into that, we have a music feature, as we always do, because you got to have music along with the common good. We have a feature by Ana Saldana, who is a L.A. native, singer-songwriter, producer, and activist for immigrants' rights and Mother Earth, and hopes to keep her culture and roots alive through song and believes music is our soul's revolution. Her music is conscience with a social justice advocacy that is relevant today. She calls her music Native Soul, where Neo Soul meets Ranchera. So today, we're going to be listening to Ana's rendition of Si se calla el cantor, or in English, If the Singer is Silent, um, initially made popular by a Mercedes Sosa. So relish in the sounds of Ana Saldana, and we'll get to Dr. Bay in just a minute. Peace. Oh, 
si se calla el canto Well, Dr. Bay, it's I mean, the the pleasure of having you on this is, is immense. I'm really, really grateful to be speaking with you. So thank you for coming to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're, you're welcome. You're very welcome, brother. Good stuff. Good John. stuff. Well, tell, well um, just to just to jump in for our listeners who who are not familiar with your work, some will be. But for those for those who aren't. Um, could you give us a bit of background into who you are and what brings you to the work you're doing now? Sure. Um, I, I'll name some people uh, who've been influential in the person that I am in terms of my academic pursuits. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Malefi Asante, Dr. Malena Karenga, Dr. Sharshi Lawrence McIntyre, uh, Dr. Sheikh Anta Jyup, although I didn't know Jyup, the others um, were my teachers, either directly in class or through conferences and seminars, as was the case with Dr. Karenga. Mm -hmm. um, my um, late great uncle Johnny Foster Bay, who was part of the Moorish Science Temple of America. Mm -hmm. um, these are key figures in terms of shaping my uh, intellectual development, as well as my interest in particular in looking at Moorish history and Moorish science in the context of the organization mm -hmm. known as the Moorish or institution known as the Moorish Science Temple of America. Of course, there are different iterations or representations of those Moorish teachings, and you know, I happen to to adhere to um, a particular understanding. Mm -hmm. um, but that's okay, uh, meaning, you know, people will find their own way. But I was raised in an environment where I was told about our Moorish ancestry through my Uncle Johnny Foster Bay as a teenager. As some people may know from my last name, because it is a Spanish or Portuguese name, depending upon uh, you know, who say who you talk to or, or where you want to begin. Yeah. Of course, except for Bay, which is a Moorish or Muslim or Muslim um, surname. But my upbringing was one where my uncle Johnny Foster Bay always said, don't forget your history. He spoke in terms of our African history, in terms of a general sense. And then he spoke in terms of our Moorish history, in terms of a more specific sense. And those influences from the time, like I said, I was a teenager, I really started to pay attention, I think, to what my uncle Johnny was saying around the age of 15, 16, a couple of years before I would go off to uh, college. And he instructed me to read things like J.A. Rogers, 
Um, uh, for those folks who don't know, J.A. Rogers or Joel Augustus Rogers was really an amateur. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I'm just saying he didn't have degrees specifically in history, but he proved to be one of the, the most critical thinking and best historians um, out there uh, for collecting a lot of primary source evidence. He wrote books like Nature Knows No Color Line, um, Sex and Race, several volumes, I think it was three volumes set, um, and the classic From Superman to Man. And this was someone born in Jamaica who would then eventually work for, I think, two African-American or, if you will, quote-unquote, Black newspapers. He covered the coronation of Haile Selassie in the 1930s and, uh, you know, the emperor of Ethiopia. And these sorts of influences were coming to me primarily from my uncle Foster Bay, Johnny Foster Bay. And then I followed up by choosing to study as an undergrad and then as in graduate school history in order to determine whether what my uncle was sharing and what I was reading in J.A. Rogers' works, because they weren't largely respected by most, you know, mainstream historians or scholars, even though they were chock full of vital primary source evidence of the African presence in Europe and Asia and the Americas. And then ultimately, and of course, I can't forget the late, great Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, mm -hmm. whose classic work, um, they came before Columbus, was actually given to me, um, or loaned to me, <laughs> I should say, <laughs> by one of my high school teachers. Um, and it completely blew my mind because here was a high school social studies teacher who was telling me that there was evidence of a pre-Columbian African presence in the Americas. Then I'm reading about the history of the Moors and finding out that the Moors represent a predominantly African people who would enter into Europe during the Islamic era between the eighth um, uh, century of the Common Era and would be there uh, right through, you know, into the Renaissance period, although there would be a mass expulsion of, of many in the 15th century with the uh, rise of Ferdinand and Isabella establishing what we know as the uh, country of Spain, as well as uh, what would also be the country of Portugal. So all of this information that I was hearing from my uncle is what would ultimately lead me into the list of scholars that I mentioned earlier, who further enhanced my understanding of who we are. Um, uh, in the context of Moorish science, we would say as Asiatics, but I would also say who we are as African and Native American people in particular. Um, uh, and it, it, it was a, a huge missing chapter that I said needed to be um, both expanded and taught on a broader scale because a lot of people didn't know anything about this. So that 
I mean, I know that's a lot, but I'm just, I guess, in trying to frame, like you, like you said, brother, how, how did I come to do this work? Primarily through my uncle, primarily through my understanding of more science as was conveyed through my uncle, Johnny Foster Bay. And then studying history, seeing where we were left out or marginalized or obfuscated, <clears throat> as I often like to say, because our, our legacy would be there, but then it would be obscured or obfuscated. And then I said, again, why? And the reason, you know, would become obvious that, to me anyway, that certain forces, certain groups, and I'm not saying everybody in a particular uh, ethnic group, a so-called racial group, but certain groups within particular circles, particularly in the academy very often, did not want the truth to come out about who we are as African people or as Moors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. That's all that is powerful. And thank you for that background, because as you're as you're talking and as you're talking about your Uncle Johnny and as you're and as you're talking about the scholars who you've have referenced, so many connections are coming to play. Because as you were talking about Dr. Rasanti, I'm like, oh, I see his book on my shelf. He's talking about Dr. Rogers or, or, or Jay Rogers. I see his book. And then mm -hmm. if I insert him, I see his book. I'm like, wow, this is this is it, it's almost like the way you said it was in order because on as I'm looking at my books, every everyone you said is in the order that they're showing up on my shelf. I, that's just that's just that's just super interesting. But was <laughs> the interest, of course, from a from our perspective, uh, as you may know, in terms of the context of more science, we would say there are no happenings. Spiritual yes. law governs all events. So this right. is none of this is coincidence, if you will. Yes, it's not an accident, and it's not That's an accident right. in, in our Moorish philosophy for sure. It's not an accident. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, this is this is powerful, and you've 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 given us so much that we can just dive into it. So many points, but I want to um, do some. I want you to do some preliminary work um, for our, our, our listeners on the term more, because that because as we as we know. The term war has a very militarized and has a very um, volatile usage and meaning in different languages and and different and different types of discourse. So, right. so when you and when um, the Moorish Science Temple, and not just the Moorish Science Temple of America, but when but when people who write from the perspective of Bansertama, from Runoku Rashidi, mm -hmm. from your perspective, from other when the word more is used, what is being indicated? The term more, usually people will say that its roots, um, when I say people, people who are looking at Western etymologies or you know the, the origin of language, would say that the word derives from the Latin mores, M-A-U-R-E-S, and then others will say it comes from then the Greek mabros, and that it's a reference to African people, dark complexioned African people that both the Greeks and the Romans encountered on the continent of Africa, right? Or what would be called Africa. Frikia, obviously, is another uh, term that speaks to the etymology even of, of the term Africa. And then others will say, uh, certainly in the context of more science, that it's related to the term uh, Moab or the or the 
word Moab, which of course has both uh, biblical and Quranic significance. Moab, who is associated with having survived the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Ruth also was a Moabitess um, who has significance, and that's someone you know through whose lineage uh, Jesus is uh, born. Uh, you know, Boaz by Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess. Um, in terms of history, most historians in the, certainly in the Western tradition would say that the Moors is a term used to refer to the predominantly African people who entered into the Iberian Peninsula in the eighth century during the Islamic era after the uh, coming of the Arab prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and all prophets. And so the term is uh, associated with that, I, I often say Afro-Asiatic, to just be inclusive of the fact that these were people both of African and, if you will, quote unquote, Middle Eastern or Near Eastern ancestry, because um, uh, the African component was largely uh, Amazigh, which are the indigenous peoples of North and Northwest Africa. But again, the African bloodlines that would enter into the Iberian Peninsula during the time of this Moorish um, invasion and, and settlement came from territories as far south as the Senegal River. So that's well into areas of what people might say are sub-Saharan Africa. So these African people clearly over the centuries will then intermarry with the various European tribes, the Franks, the Gauls, the Hispani, uh, the Visigoths, um, uh, the Celts, who are all in the Iberian Peninsula. And the admixture will produce lighter complexioned folks over the course of time. But the earliest references that are found when the word mortal or moors in English uh, are used indicate that they were talking about dark complexioned African people who entered into the Iberian Peninsula most often associated with being Muslim, largely because this triggers in 711, 710, 711, this occupation, this resettlement of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not more, uh, clearly over the centuries, I'd say million or more, million or more Africans in the Iberian Peninsula, and that establishes this historic reference to the Moors being in Europe, specifically in what is now Spain, Portugal, and areas of southern France, also into Crete, also into Sicily, um, other parts of the Mediterranean. And they will um, be a major catalyst 
for the sciences. So the sciences that had been part of the ancient world from Egypt to Greece to Rome to Persia to India to China, because of the spread of the religion of Al-Islam, these Muslims who were predominantly African, Moors, living in the Iberian Peninsula, which they rename Al-Andalus or Andalusia as it will become known in Spanish, bring all this information, all this scientific knowledge into the Iberian Peninsula, right? And start to spread it among European Christians who were largely in what used to be called the Dark Ages. Now, more recent research does indicate that not every community in Europe was living in the same conditions that people would talk about in terms of the squalor and the, um, the cultural or intellectual ignorance, because there were pockets of Europeans who were still holding on to the remnants of the, the old Greco-Roman empire and were not as, um, if you will, distant from what we would define as civilization. But what the Moors do is they essentially make this um, uh, more accessible, no pun intended, right? More <laughs> accessible to um, the average person. The Moors, by virtue of their understanding of scripture, you know, and of course, uh, Quran said that Christians, Jews, and Muslims were all the people of the book, the Al Al Kitab. And as a result, did not, for the most part, for the almost 800 years, 700 years of being in the Iberian Peninsula, didn't compel Christians or Jews to convert to Islam. This then allowed for a greater exchange of ideas um, and the spreading of this knowledge and a great documentary that I recommend by um, a British historian, uh, uh, a lady by the name of Dr. Bettany Hughes, and the documentary is called When the Moors Ruled Europe. Um, so it was understood that when one talked about a Moor, they were talking about a so-called Black person. And I say so-called because um, to equate Moor with Black is like equating Asian or Chinese with yellow, <laughs> right? Uh, the application of the term is it doesn't fit, right? Any more than one would say that if someone is Asian, then they're yellow American. Uh, the term more does not simplistically translate as black. And then the last point I'll make for now is other people have talked about these connections to the Mahuran, um, uh, which then takes us into areas of what is now Jordan. Um, where the term uh, more may also have these, these roots. Um, and when the Spaniards were, uh, what would become the Spaniards, um, the Roman Catholic Church uh, would refer to the Moors as the Moabitarum in uh, Latin. And there's the reference to Moabite again, uh, that is in, in place. So, that's you know, a general overview of the term more. 
And then finally, during the period of the 18th century, when the United States is getting established uh, by virtue of the American Revolution, one of its allies will be Sidi Mohammed of Morocco, uh, as I recall, the, the second, who establishes a treaty and recognizes the independence of the United States. And the U.S. will then have these treaty with those of the Moorish Empire, because it was understood that Morocco was imperial. Anyone who came from within the borders of the Moroccan Empire or the Moorish Empire were Moors. And so it gets fixed as a specific nationality, just like one would talk about British as a specific nationality. And British can encompass someone who is Welsh. British can encompass someone who is Irish. British can, of course, encompass someone who is English or Scottish. It could even at one point encompass someone who was in India, right, or other parts of the British Empire outside of, if you will, the Isle, the British Isles. So more or Moorish in that context, because there was once an imperial um, aspect to the Moorish um, identity during that time, uh, has the same uh, relevance. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So this, so this, wow, all of this information and all of this great, I don't know how you, how you did a th over, over a thousand years of history in about five minutes. That, that, that's amazing. <laughs> but that just, that just goes to show how, how, how um, astute of a scholar you are, which is, which is one thing that really caught my attention. And we'll get into Othello's children and then, and the new world, I'm, I'm sure shortly, but, but, but you've led us up to, um, to the Moore Science Temple of America. What does the, what is the Moore Science Temple of America, and what do and what does Prophet Noble Drew Ali do with the information that you've just laid out, and why is it important for us? Noble Drew Ali, or Timothy Drew, as he was initially known, who then is recognized, of course, as a prophet within Moorish science, basically. And, and I know we only, we have limited time, so let me just say I'll, I'll give the what I often say is the Reader's Digest version, <laughs> uh, or or the abstract, right? Mm -hmm. um, Noble Drali realizes that the Americas had a connection to the Moorish Empire. He realizes that African people who had been enslaved and lost our nationality by virtue of enslavement, being categorized under the law as Negro, Black, and colored, then become what the late great John Hope Franklin used to refer to as quasi-free Negroes. And, and uh, Franklin was speaking in terms of um, those Negroes in the South, you know, prior to the Civil War, who were free as free Negroes, but really they were quasi-free because there were still 
ne- uh, black codes and Negro codes that limited their ability to be seen as equals in their respective states. Drew Ali recognized that this had something to do with a loss of names, specifically national names, nationality, that in the US as a democratic republic and all republics historically would have citizens, aliens and slaves that the justification for the enslavement of certain people was because those people had lost their nationhood, their personhood. And in so doing, could be mistreated under the law. Uh, Now, people could say, well, it's wrong, and it is ethically wrong. There's no question. And so that, that issue was never a problem for me if someone says, well, but these people still knew it was, meaning European Americans who did this, right? They knew it was wrong, but it was a way of putting in place some sort of legal structure that justified an unjust society, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, the justification was, if you're going to answer to the term Negro, Black, and colored, knowing that in a republic, To do so means that you don't have the rights of those who are free nationals, right? We're not enslaving, uh, certainly at that point, um, uh, Native Americans. The Cherokee couldn't be legally enslaved because they were a nation that was recognized. They were certainly mistreated. Don't get me wrong. That's why I say this is where things get get real interesting as, as scholars or historians dive into just what is going on here. Um. Same thing with the Choctaw or the Iroquois or or any of the indigenous nations. But the point is that chattel slavery, the equating of somebody with cattle, that's what chattel means. To say that this person is now a chattel slave means they lost their personhood. Drew Ali figured out that this appeared to be the legal justification for the abuse of quote unquote black people or Negroes. So he recognized that those in the US labeled as Negro, black and colored were more accurately Moors or Moorish, African people who came from within the Moorish empire. And so he established the Moorish Science Temple. Um, and of course, like I said, I'm giving you an abbreviated version because earlier there was something that was a Canaanite temple, which was in Newark, New Jersey, and then it would go to the Moorish Holy Temple of Science and then ultimately the Moorish Science Temple of America. In doing this, he then f- would fly the Moorish flag, which also was identical to the flag of Morocco. Historically speaking, dignitaries from Morocco would come and recognize, if you will, the legitimacy of Moorish Americans as descendants of Moroccans born in America. So it's not a fly-by-night thing in terms of how this gets established. Problems occur later, again, that relate to people not following what Drew Ali actually left for us. That's again, it's another conversation. Right. <laughs> Next time I, 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 I have you on, we'll deal with that. <laughs> right. Right. 
But the idea of showing the African-American populace that we have a free national name, that we are descendants of, of the Moors, meant that we would then be um, full citizens under the Constitution and under this free national government. So that was the rationale. The other thing was, as he said, this was a divine and national movement. So I pretty much discussed the national aspect, right, to give people back their rights as, as free nationals, right, and not be um, uh, um, basically citizens under what Drawley called a granted privilege when we get into the significance of the, uh, the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And he then said, by affirming who you are, you now have to represent who you are to the best of our own traditions, our divine traditions. There's the divine aspect. And so the divine aspect was to give us an understanding of Islam that he also referenced as Islamism, or sometimes just as Islam, but it's a Moorish science understanding, right? And he made it clear this was not identical to what would exist, say, among Sunnis or Shiite or even Qadahites or other groups, right? But that the basic theological premise that uh, the great God of the universe, known in, in Arabic, of course, as Allah, sends prophets to people at points in time in order to uplift them, to uplift fallen humanity, and to get us back on a path of, as Jurali laid it out, love, truth, peace, freedom, and justice. Those five tenets, and even the way that Allah is defined under more science, that Allah is the father of love, truth, peace, freedom, and justice. Now, he found himself, of course, having some issues with, with those in the, in the quote-unquote orthodox community, say, of the Sunni, right? But his point was, especially in the United States, was supposed to have freedom of religion, right? This is his and ultimately the organization's understanding of how to interpret Islam, right? That was his understanding that also acknowledged the relevance of Egypt. It also acknowledged the relevance of India in terms of the spiritual systems that came out of those two ancient civilizations, right? Um, and so there, there is an eclectic aspect to it, but there are also key correlations to things like Sufism and the, the murids or the marabouts, um, the Gnostic traditions of the Christian community, um, right, as well as aspects of, of Hinduism, right, in terms of you know, uh, uh, India. And of course, you know, there are many gods in the context of Hinduism. But the assertion of more science is there is one great god of the universe, but there are attributes, if you will, 
that exist and the five primary ones that humanity or we as Moors are supposed to follow are love, truth, peace, freedom, and justice. And the prophet Jesus is a key figure as someone who is um, a model or a paradigm for uh, how to conduct our lives and how to make the flesh, if you will, divine. Um, the idea of affirming the spiritual principles of love, truth, peace, freedom, and justice in our thoughts, in our actions, right? So that we make the world a better place. So that's the divine aspect. And of course, again, you know, trying to give um, every aspect, uh, every um, um, fact, every understanding is very difficult in the span of, you know, an hour's time. So <laughs> right, that, right. But that's why I wrote the book, Othello's Children in the New World. Yeah. Yeah. Which I definitely want want people to get a hold of. Um, yeah. So this is this is really, really enlightening, enlightening material um, on the more science temple of, of America and it's and it's 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 national well it's civic and it's divine um it's it's divine mandates um yeah and and I you know there's 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 so many things that just that just pop up to mind um and there's several things and there's several avenues we could we could explore mm -hmm. in, in in the remainder of our time um but you know this is this connection between this static understanding of personhood that happens when racial categories become solidified and 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 when people when, when people begin to believe that they're real um there's a there's a certain fluidity that we lose that i that i that i think that um prophet noble drew ali certainly brings up even not not only in this in this understanding of nationality mm -hmm. but this understanding of theology as you just pointed up well mm -hmm. well, you, well you know um more science is not just one particular type of philosophical or theological perspective it's it's several and there's a synergy between them all and you know this is this is super interesting too i think in terms of even the thinkers outside of the moorish science temple who assert the same information, like the, the pre-existence of Afro people, as you would say, with Afrocoid features in the in the places that we now know as the Americas. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just even looking at where some of them come from, I always find it interesting that many people, not all, but 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 many people who were more open to these ideas that some people thought were countercultural <laughs> were from the Caribbean. You know, mm -hmm. Rogers was from the Caribbean, Van Sertoma, mm -hmm. um, yourself, um, even um, my father's side of the family from Belize and Honduras, mm -hmm. um, from from the Caribbean side of Belize and Honduras. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting that that just I don't know if there's a connection between that, but did you ever notice that? Yes, I have. Yeah, I, I it's, it's ironic you would you would take that direction with this, because it is something that I've noticed. And I've asked myself, what, you know, what is that about? I think part of what it's about is that the Caribbean, because there was a, a, a large number of people of African ancestry, 
and Native American, if we're talking about the Tainos or the, the Carib peoples, but certainly Africans, who had a different historical experience. Um, and I would say a lot of it is because in many cases, islands in the Caribbean or nations like in, you know, South America, um, with places like what was, you know, Dutch Guiana, where Dr. Van Sertema grew up, um, there was greater autonomy and most European folks, for the most part, kind of left uh, African people, or people with Africoid features alone relative to what was happening in the United States, which was much more uh, systematically violent and vindictive um, to maintain what might be called global white supremacy or Eurocentric hegemony. And so I've sometimes thought that the reason for the difference, and, and I know now this is an, this is anecdotal, but um, I remember my um, uncle telling me about my grandfather who was born in Barbados, mm -hmm. who had a business in New York. He was a contractor, a builder. And of course, he had many people who were hired from, you know, within the larger African-American community. And this would have been in Harlem, New York in the 1920s, 30s and 40s. And um, he found that um, his uh, lack of fear <laughs> of, quote unquote, white people was more pronounced than a lot of the folks that he knew in our in the african-american community at the time and that may be a factor because if you're not right i mean imagine people living in the the deep south in particular <clears throat> things associated with the like the red summer of 1919 and then uh, you know, what happened in general with like Tulsa, Oklahoma and, and Rosewood, Florida and, and, and other places, right? Uh, even in, in uh, North Carolina, I think it was Wilmington. And, I mean, any number of places where success, financial success and, and showing some sort of, of um, uh, affirmation of self or pride, uh, could easily get you beaten badly or murdered. And I think the experience in the Caribbean was not that bad in comparison to what was happening to African peoples in the United States. So I think that plays a factor then in the mindset of folks in terms of how people will conduct themselves which is why you have the, the boldness of a, um, a Marcus Garvey, right? Hmm. Uh, or the boldness of, of a Malcolm X, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, and that isn't to say that there weren't, I mean, was, what about Nat Turner? Look, I get it. Nat Turner, again, we're talking about the 18, late 1820s and 1830s, mm -hmm. different time compared to, and, and we see what happened to Nat Turner. And I would say that, that's part of what would break the spirit and the willingness to fight back against injustice 
among many African-Americans that doesn't appear to have been the same for many Caribbean people. So I, I just think that's one aspect. So like I said, when you raised that question, uh, uh, Brother Gill, it, it made me um, remember, like I said, that, you know, because I hadn't thought about it for a while, probably been a, maybe a couple of years before that even crossed my mind. But that was a very important question you just asked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it it just it just um it just me it just means it just means a lot to hear that that's been on your mind too, you know. Um, and it and yeah. it yeah. Um, some some work I think certainly needs to be done on that. Um, this 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 actually may be a future project for you or for myself. I don't know, or maybe or maybe or maybe for us both. I don't know, <laughs> but but this is this is certainly and I and I and I also think that um that that in the places that the, the region that we now call the Caribbean, I do think in many instances there is this there is this focus on nationality, which which in many ways can trump or create a space in which race does not exist in in the ways at least not existing in the ways that we know it to exist in many times in the United States. Yes. Yes. To where, to where nationality is very, is very, um, cause I just, the episode that came out before this episode, I was talking to my friend, Dr. R Rupa Palai, who, um, who studied, who was, who was at UPenn and she mm -hmm. did her dissertation on, um, individuals of Indian descent who are in the Caribbean. And, and, um, especially she is, I, I, ironically speaking of, speaking of Dr. Van Serdema, mm -hmm. she focused on, um, people of Indian descent who were from Guyana and, and what's, and what she brought out. And this is something I've, you know, experienced, you know, growing up. Um, and when with, you say Indian, do you mean East Indian or East Indian? What? Okay. East gotcha. Indian descent. Okay. Yes. East Indian descent. So, um, and, and, and there's of course a name that they were called that I'm not going to use here, but yeah, but yes, of East Indian descent. Gotcha. Yes. Yes. Um, and what she was bringing out, and this is something I'm very, 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 very familiar with from with my dad's side, who is from Belize and Honduras. Um, mm. What's what's most what's most important in many instances is nationality. Okay, well, many times people don't really don't really take into consideration the fact that well people have different physical appearances. Now that does come up in certain ways, yes. Mm -hmm. But what is most oh. You're from Trinidad, okay? Well, you're Trin you're you're Trinidadian, you know. You're you know you're from Bar as you mentioned, you're from Barbados, you know. You're mm -hmm. Barbadian, you know. Um, and this is and this Barbados. national mm -hmm. identity comes up as opposed to this phenotypical definition, which I which which I'm really really I'm always fascinated by how the prophet was so on point with reimagining how that can be detrimental. Right. And what you made me think of, <clears throat> excuse me, I went back to um, uh, Garvey in my mind and the Garvey movement and the fact that there was a riff that existed very often among, if you will, African-Americans or quote unquote black Americans mm -hmm. who didn't like the fact that many West Indians tended to emphasize nationality, just like you said. Um, and it created a problem. And, and whether it was some West Indians who affirmed that they were, say, British subjects, mm -hmm. uh, or whether they were saying that they were, like you said, West Indian, you know, Bayesian, Jamaican, uh, 
Trinidadian from, you know, what, what have you. Um, and that that emphasis upon nationality was because they knew that they had a nation or place mm -hmm. that was um, referencing a culture, referencing, um, uh, say, a language, although the language would have been, you know, in most cases, a European language, um, but and a government and a and a structure, as opposed to, as you say, emphasizing phenotype, right? And both of those views have their, in my opinion, have their um, their strength, mm -hmm. right? And that's going back to what Garvey's uh, mission, I think, was about, right? Garvey mm -hmm. understood as a as a Jamaican that he, um, as an African man, particularly an African man, you know, with a dark hue, mm -hmm. dark complexion found that people who were dark complexioned African people tended to be um, uh, looked down upon more than those who were lighter in complexion. And that was one of the problems that existed in Jamaica. This idea of, you know, what my uncle used to say all the time is a pigmentocracy. Mm -hmm. So the pigmentocracy problem uh, is what made a lot of people, including Garvey, I would suggest, focus on this idea of, you know, I have to do something to raise the status of the black man and black woman, if you will, globally. And that means we have to uh, resurrect um, the true meaning and history and legacy of what it is to be African. Um, and so his back to Africa a movement which largely was a psychological back to Africa movement. Um, it had traces clearly of wanting to pick up and go uh, back to the continent if, you know, uh, as situations improved. But his focus is really on getting people to embrace their Africanity because he saw that that was what had produced in large measure the pigmentocratic values that existed, you see. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I get the problem with not putting more emphasis upon nationality and nationhood. In fact, um, uh, even um, uh, uh, Martin Delaney mm -hmm. had said, uh, you know, in the, in the 19th century, that the claims of uh, no people according to established policy and usage are respected by any nation until they're presented in a national capacity, right? So he understood that that need for a national capacity, that you, you had to approach bringing together a nation. You know, people you say back in the day, what time is it? You know, it's, it's nation time. Mm -hmm. So that should supersede. But because of the phenotypic um, obsession of global white supremacy, and now we're going into a whole nother topic where we'd have to address, you know, things like um, Dr. Cress Welsing's color confrontation theory mm -hmm. to really understand that in its fullness. And, and even though I don't agree with the idea that every European 
has a fear of genetic annihilation. Sure. Right. I, I don't. Sure. I'm just going to say it. Right. Um, um, but I do believe that historically speaking, a preponderance, preponderance, even a majority of Europeans were fearful uh, of that mm -hmm. for sure. But mm -hmm. that things would change and have changed over over time. And the remnants of that are still uh, echoing through the, 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 the minds and the actions of, of many people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a balanced view, Dr. Bay, because um, there are some people who will have a strong stance on either side, not understanding the other. But what you presented here is so balanced. Well, there are there are certainly practical reasons for both, you know, yeah, for both. Um, yeah, this is this is this is amazing. And I mean, I think that I think that needs to be lifted up as we go further. Um, you know, and I like the way you do that in Othello's Children in the New World, where you where where you do talk about um, the ways then the ways in which and you and it's so brilliant because you you give us so many sources. You, it's 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 like a bibliography with commentary. You know, I mean, and just and just great and just great work that you've done there. You know, but yeah, you've 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 given us both sides to where you've talked about the issues with um pigmentocracy which are very important you've also talked about how nationality is the order of the of the, uh, of the day so right, right so yeah right. it's 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 really really it's really really amazing one thing i want to i want to ask because i know your time is limited one last question i had for you well and I've this got, is, i can I, let me just tell you i've got i've got 15 minutes so okay yeah okay perfect okay. perfect well that will that will that will i will allow you to to expound on this one if you would um <laughs> just for for people who this under this idea of a pre-Columbian existence of people from the continent that we now call Africa right. in the U in the places that we now know as the Americas, um, what is some of the most what was some of the most convincing evidence for you of that that you would offer to someone as a starting point? I'd say the most convincing evidence for me was to find out that Matthew Sterling, who was part of the Smithsonian Institute's research team, and this is what Dr. Ivan Van Sertum had pointed out, you know, decades ago, um, found these Negroid heads, as they called them, was convinced that there were quote unquote Negroes or African people in the Yucatan Peninsula, in Mexico, uh, long before the Spaniards. I mean, pulling up these gigantic multi-ton heads, especially the ones at like Tres Zapotes um, in Veracruz area. Uh, and then knowing that people like uh, Alex Herdlichka, who was a European anti-African, anti-Asian racist um, who was in charge of, um, I think it was the Smithsonian, and I think he also was affiliated with the Museum of Natural History. But uh, Dr. Herdlichka, H-R-D-L-I-C-K-A, um, was actively involved, according to people like Van Sertema, 
And as I recall, even Cyrus Gordon, who was an NYU uh, professor, scholar, uh, who looked at the same topic of the pre-Columbian presence uh, of African peoples in the Americas. Um, these artifacts, you know, these people say a picture is worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. These artifacts were so convincing of there being an African presence that those institutions at the time, we're going back almost 100 years or, you know, going back 80 years, um, 70 years, those institutions were actively involved, according to those scholars, in hiding these sources, according to what Van Sertum and others pointed out. And when you look at these, especially the ones like the Olmec Monument F from Tres Zapotes, you're looking at an African face. There's no question, none. And to think that people tried to say these were stylized baby jaguar faces shows you to what lengths folks will go in order to try to avoid it. And that's there's the obfuscation. And then ultimately, you just try to bury it. The other source, um, the late great Alexander von Futenau, von Futenau was a German art historian who wrote a book called Unexpected Faces in Ancient America. Um, uh, I wonder, I, I certainly hope and, and pray that his museum, because he had a museum, artifacts in Mexico City, is still there uh, with these artifacts, because Van Sertima went to visit him and they took photographs together and, and so forth, right, um, uh, with some of these artifacts. So I would say um, the physical artifacts are convincing. I would say the reports, especially related to people like um, Matthew Sterling, like I said, the, the um, uh, uh, Smithsonian expedition, these people were saying, these look like, to put it in layman's terms, these look like black folks, right? But the idea of allowing that information, especially in the 20s and 30s, was a no-no. And so first they tried to say, as Van Sertima pointed out, well, these artifacts, um, yeah, they're, they may be Negroes, but these would have been the slaves. And then Van Sertima, I remember him saying, yeah, well, why would you build monuments to the slaves and not monuments to the masters? It made no sense. So you're, you're talking about every effort. And this is what comes from, a, a, um, you know, the, the sick mind of a racist or a sick mind of an anti-African is they cannot accept the idea that an African is either their equal or better in certain areas. And I don't mean better, I'm talking about in say, getting to the Americas, uh, transatlantic uh, travel, areas of science, et cetera. The idea of believing that there's nothing inherently inferior about someone of African ancestry of a dark, or, uh, dark hue or complexion, uh, tightly curled hair, full lips, broad nose, all of the characteristics we associate with that phenotype. What Eurocentric hegemony has done 
is it has tried to convince people that that particular phenotype is an indication of inferiority. And so any of these artifacts that were being unearthed at the time, and even when you had Mexican scholars and historians saying they don't have a problem with acknowledging that there were, there were uh, Africanos or Negros in the ancient Americas, but later that would be obfuscated, just as I would say the same thing applies to Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. Where you had people in Egypt who knew that there was a clear African foundation, not from the north, but from the southern parts of the Nile Valley. But then when you get up to more current times and particular leaders in Egyptian antiquities, who because, I would say, because of um, uh, financial reasons, basically decided to start to emphasize the lighter complexioned Egyptians over the darker complexioned Egyptians because they found that that served their financial and political interests. So sadly, what we're looking at again is how people say, well, why would they do that? I mean, it's just history, for goodness sake, right? <laughs> well, history is understood as having a tremendous impact on how people think and feel. And if there's a particular group that has a particular agenda, they'll manipulate history to their own ends. And if people say, well, that's what you're doing, or other people say, well, to determine whether I'm doing it means you have to look at all angles, right? Mm -hmm. And I've said, and I've done this uh, uh, in my classes many times, I'm not telling people to believe what I have found to be true. Yeah. I'm telling people, if you will, to consider all the evidence and to not run from one side because you presume there's nothing to it. When I've said, when I've said um, even when I was referencing um, von Futen now, and someone talked about um, the, the Vikings or the Welsh being in the pre-Columbian Americas, and I said, I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Really? You know, I said, no, why would I have a problem with evidence of Vikings or, or uh, Welsh sailors making it to the pre-Columbian Americas. Uh, that's fine. All I'm saying is there's evidence of pre-Columbian Africans mm -hmm. that came here during the period of the Olmec and following that period, because then the Olmec period is taking us back to about 1000 BCE and then going right up to the time of um, uh, Abu uh, Bakari II and the expeditions from Mali to the Americas, right? And then people like Clyde Ahmad Winters who've talked about um, Columbus's diaries, which reference seeing Moors or Africans in Cuba uh, when uh, Columbus uh, uh, showed up. So this is information that is known. It's not that it isn't known, it's that certain media outlets and scholarly outlets don't want it out. Why? Because it changes the narrative around issues of race. And there seems to be a problem, not seems, there is a problem, I would argue, uh, with the idea that Africans, Europeans, Asians, Native Americans, Australian Aborigines are all 
equal under the great God of the universe in terms of capabilities. What determines outcome has more to do with what the environment is, what the conditioning is. I know there are organic issues that can arise in certain uh, people, but not in so-called racial groups. You'll find greatness among and, and brilliance and genius among all those phenotypic representations of the peoples I just mentioned. But a global white supremacist structure does not want that reality or that truth to be known. Now it's changing and largely because of the people I mentioned earlier hmm. um, and largely because I'm making my own you know, attempt to undo what I see as, as an evil to humanity at large. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. That's powerful. And even I think about it in terms of, as you're talking, the structures that, that, that the academy is set up to siphon this strand of historical information through, you right. know, um, because what does it, because according to this information, the way we've structured African-American studies, Latino, Hispanic studies, so-called, mm -hmm. so-called Asian, so-called Asian-American, so-called indigenous, so-called all of these studies that we have in colleges and, and universities are based on a certain, a, a certain type of understanding and a certain type of presupposition of a certain part of the information. And, and so it's really interesting to think about what would happen if, as you were saying, that all of the information is considered. And yeah. Right. And that was the beauty of uh, Von Futenau's work, right? Mm -hmm. V-O-N-W-U-T-H-E-N-A-U. His name was Alexander Von Futenau. Mm -hmm. Was that he was saying through his work, Unexpected Faces in Ancient America, which if you can find the book, you found gold because um, the book is, as I understand, is no longer in, in print. But mm -hmm. he was showing images of Asians, images of Africans, images of Europeans who were in the pre-Columbian Americas. But what was most significant, of course, to Van Sertima, for obvious reasons, because he was trying to resurrect the understanding that there was a pre-Columbian African presence, people who would be classified phenotypically as African. And von Futenau's point was, look, everybody is great. Mm -hmm. Everybody has been shown to contribute to the forward flow of human progress at some point in time. The challenge is when we come into contact with certain groups or agendas, which are not interested in that more um, if you will, egalitarian view of the human family, right? Morris science teaches us we're to learn to love instead of hate, right? That's an important part of our spiritual or divine instruction. Learn to love instead of hate. Learn to love yourself, of course. I'm not talking about narcissism. I just mm -hmm. mean knowing that there's nothing inherently wrong with you because of your physical appearance and ultimately learning to love others who are an extension of ourselves hmm. so um but 
that's the challenge of being here, right? Because the mm -hmm. soldier never knows his strength or her strength until they meet the enemy. And the, <laughs> that's true. Right. And the enemy is the lower self. Yes. The enemy yeah. is the lower self. Yes. Yes. Yes, I was so compelled when, um, and I and I, I, I have to give honor to, um, to 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 my to my good friend Dominic Pettis L, also known to the um, yes. the, 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 the hip hop world as IB Focus, um, mm. who who introduced me to a lot of your work and to the into the teachings of the Morris Science Temple of, of America, um, and so and so I've always been compelled by it. It's you know, and like I was saying earlier, especially. Because a, because a part of my heritage understood nationality very strongly yes. anyway. The, right. The Belize link. Yes. 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 That was always very, very important. So, you know, those those connections, it just brought out of this full circle and caused me to and reading your work, it caused me to reimagine something because I would ask I would ask um, Brother Pettis, OK, well, you know what you're saying this, but what can you can you provide? some information that really, really, that really, really makes a strong case for your historical arguments. And he pointed me to you and I said, okay, okay, this is, this is, this is beyond what I was asking for, but yes, <laughs> this is, this is, yeah. So, and, and yeah, I mean, it just, it just brought me to some things that of course I knew before in some ways, but you know, mm -hmm. your, your knowledge really, really enriched some things that I thought I knew before. So, you know, this is, so it's really, really, a pleasure to have you here, and I'm really glad that our guest um, and our, our our audience got to hear what you were what you've offered to us. So thank you so much for you're, you're for joining welcome. us. For joining and thank us. you, brother, for the invitation. And and um, all I I mean I would say any any of us who was committed to the ancient comedic adage of know thyself, mm -hmm. right, um, which would then echo through the ages. <laughs> Um, uh, and we certainly need that now. Um, uh, I commend you and all others who are doing that because as we say, heaven knows we need that during these times. Mm -hmm. We certainly need that. So I, I appreciate the invitation and, and thank you uh, mm -hmm. for inviting me. Certainly, certainly, certainly. It's it's such it's such a pleasure. We we'll have to ha have you back on when you um get the next book out or or the next several. <laughs> so when so when whenever you wanna whenever you wanna come on, um, you're certainly welcome. And and before we get out of here, could you, if you so desire, could you tell people how to get in contact with you or how to access Othello's Children and the New World and other oh. writings you've done? Well, yeah, I am. Um, I'm a Associate Professor of African and African American Studies at Berea College in Kentucky. So I can be reached just by contacting um, the department. Um, you know, if you just go to the website for, for Berea College and you'll see, you know, I'm listed there, uh, Dr. Jose Pimienta Bay. And as far as the, um, my book, Othello's Children in the New World, you, know, you can either get it through uh, Author House books or um it can be ordered off of amazon you know as well good stuff good stuff so you you heard it here from the scholars own mouth get it pick it up and you'll you'll definitely be all the better for it so once again dr bay thank you so much we're, we're so glad to ha have you on all things cosmic thank thank you uh, brother gill and and to you and and your audience i always sign off whenever i can with 
wishing everyone peace and love. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Dr. Bay, for joining us and giving us uh, not only a history lesson, but a mandate to really investigate the histories we've been taught and investigate how those histories impact how we live in the world and how they are very related and are synonymous with the common good. So thank you once again, Dr. Bay. Make sure you pick up Othello's Children in the New World and Dr. Bay's other writings. Um, yes. So with that being said, we thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. I don't even know what's going to be on next. Sometimes I think I do. And sometimes, you know, we've had some shuffling issues that have happened. Feel like I'm juggling um, guest this season. But sometimes things happen to where interviews don't get scheduled when I think they're going to. So I was going to tell you who's going to be on next, but I don't even know yet. So so um, I'm just going to say that the next episode as the previous episodes in season two have been, will be amazing. Um, So look forward to it. Make sure you stay tuned. Make sure you get in tune with the Center for Process Studies, CTR, the number four, process.org. If you're interested in Novel Adventures, make sure you check out Novel Adventures on the Center for Process Studies website and all the other wonderful things we have going on. The Center for Process Studies is a multiverse of resources around process thought historically from our vantage point, beginning with the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead, Charles Hart, so not beginning, but mainly, but emphasized in many ways by um, Alfred North Whitehead and Charles Hartshorn and other thinkers before and after. Um, so check us out and see what we're doing. There's so many avenues at the Center for Process Studies. So make sure you visit us on the web and we'll be in communication that way and in other ways. Well, with that being said, I'm John Ivan Gill, Cross Community Coordinator with the Center for Process Studies. And on behalf of, Af- of Andrew Davis, thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thank you once again for listening to All Things Cosmic Philosophy Science Art Brought to you by the Center for Process Studies A relational worldview for the common good I am John Ivan Gill And on behalf of Andrew Davis We'll see you next time Theme music by The Extreme on Instagram, D-Extreme, D-X-T-R-E-M-E, underscore, B-E-A-T-Z.